show. Today we've got the return of our friend Rich Velotas, who was in the podcast uh, maybe two years ago when his first book came out. Uh, the first book is The Deeply Formed Life. It's a good book. His new book comes out next week. It is good and beautiful and kind. Uh, th- that's the title of the book. It, it also is good and beautiful kind in terms of that's a categorical description of it, but the actual title is Good and Beautiful and Kind. And uh, you're going to hear more about that in just a second with our wounded friend, Rich Velotas. Uh, but first, we've got a mailbag question for you, for us today. Um, we did one last week, and uh, we're doing one again today. And uh, if you got more, feel free. Send them in. Hit me up on Instagram. Send me an email, luke at lutonorsworthy.com. Um, and this one comes from our friend, Becky. And she's discussing what I often, I guess I refer to it enough, so, so much so that a, a listener has a question about what exactly uh, the list consists of. And her question is, what is my top five favorite Calvinist? And she has a theory as to who she thinks my favorite five Calvinists are. Uh, here's her list. Johnny Storm, uh, Jonathan Stormont, Dave Barnes, uh, singer-songwriter, our friend, uh, Scott Sauls, who's just on the podcast, Eugene Peterson, and Derek Richemois. Uh, all five of those have been on the podcast, and I'm going to be honest, she's got two out of the five, maybe three. I don't know if Eugene Peterson really is a Calvinist. Uh, maybe you could let me know if he is. Uh, if so, he would definitely be on the list. Um, but uh, Dave Barnes, I do believe God gave me you for one podcast episode, and also to write a song, God Gave Me You, which is the name of the song. That's a funny pun, if you get it. Um, he's not on the top five. Um, Derek, yeah, he's he's not on the top five either. I'm, I'm not saying like I don't like them. I'm just saying like they're not my top five. Here here are my current top five favorite Calvinists. Brian Blendon, he is a Acts 29 church planner or was uh, in the Denton, Texas area, and uh, you, you guys might not know him. Uh, wasn't like a mega church pastor, didn't write any books, but he was the pastor who welcomed me with open arms to Denton when I was a church planner. And I will forever be grateful to him for that. And he's become a good friend over the years. His daughter actually is a high-level cheerleader. One of his daughters is a high-level cheerleader. And so we actually still see him at uh, cheerleading competitions every now and then. Uh, I saw him most recently, maybe two months ago at one. And uh, yeah, so he's a uh, top five favorite Calvinist. You might not know him. Scott Sauls, who I did just see in Nashville uh, a couple weeks ago for the release of his book. He is top five. I'll tell you why he's in the top five. I love the way that he has incorporated a call and a commitment to the kingdom of God that transcends political diversity. And that is the reason I've had him on the podcast. And that's what first sparked uh, my interest in his work. And I have been nothing but impressed with him ever since then. Uh, getting to talk to him in person uh, at his book release party and kind of hearing him uh, and getting to know like more of him just because I've never actually talked to him in person. Uh, I really found him to be a really compelling person and I see why he's connected to so many people. Uh, third one, Kristen Dumay. Uh, she's been on the podcast a handful of times. You've heard her recently. Uh, I love the work that she's doing as a historian, helping us pick apart the ways that we have become... Uh, overly committed to our culture and we've baptized it and we've made it think that it's actually Christian. Uh, her book, Jesus and John Wayne, helped us see some of the ways that uh, the American white evangelical church has looked more uh, white and evangelical than it is Christian. And I think that is something that we as Christians are always having to ask the question. In what ways have we married ourselves to the popular culture and in our um, ignorance, We've called it Christian, 
and anyone who's helping us bifurcate those two things is really important uh, and someone we need to listen to. Uh, number four on the list is an old friend named Matt Chandler. He is a pastor in Dallas. He is a megachurch pastor. And I, like he and I are not like friend friends at this point. Uh, not like just because of chance and happenstance. Not like we had like a falling out or something like that. But um, when I was in college... His preaching was deeply impactful to me, helped me a lot as I was trying to figure out what it looked like to be a young man who was a preacher. I was 18, 19, first time I heard him preach, and it was really formative for me in college. And things that form you in those years have a lot of impact on you. And even if I don't keep up with his work and don't listen to his sermons or you know, haven't had him on the podcast or anything like that, I will forever be grateful for someone who helped uh, early in my career, kind of point me in the direction of what it meant uh, to be a preacher. Uh, and so, loved his work for that, and much respect to him for that. And uh, number five, we're going to count Stormont. I know he doesn't say he's a Calvinist, but let's be honest, he's a Calvinist. He also says he's an Enneagram 3. We all know he's not really an Enneagram 3. But he is one of my most beloved friends in the world. And uh, he's basically Calvinist at this point, so he's number five on the list. So uh, that's the mailbag question for today. And uh, now, without further ado, our friend, Rich. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Now, many of you sports fans remember when Willis Reed came back out to the finals after an injury. Many of you were reminded of what Michael Jordan did with so, so-called flu game uh, as we rewatched his career on The Last Dance. Turns out flu game, more bad pizza game, maybe food poisoning by the Utah fans. But today we have our own version of that on the podcast. Today we have returning Rich Velotas and his mangled left hand. Welcome to the show. Luke, so good to be here, and I hope to offer a inspiring performance like MJ or Willis Reed from my New York Knicks. Yeah, I know you're a New York guy, so I figured the uh, Willis Reed reference would, would be near and dear to your heart. I'm sorry I don't have like some John Stark reference to go with as well. My bad. But um, you, you emailed me yesterday and said, hey, we got to reschedule this. I hurt my hand at a baseball game, and my first thought was, Rich told me last time he was on the podcast that he was a Mets fan, and this is the kind of thing that would definitely happen to a Mets fan. You know, the Mets are notorious for these freak injuries. Uh, you know, so, uh, so recently a dog bit one of the pitcher's hands. Uh, another guy, he broke his leg because he was doing something on a farm. Random stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I'm at this game, first game in three years because of the pandemic. Uh, my wife mm-hmm. got me some Father's Day Mets tickets third row behind the dugout having a great time and then this towering uh, pop-up comes my way and when it gets hit i immediately go well i don't want to say exactly what i said but i go (laughs) it's coming in my direction here and me and another guy uh throw our hands up to try to catch this towering fly ball pop-up really and then it just hit my pinky and in the moment i was like wow that, that that feels more like more than a jam out of my, my finger. And then by the next inning, my wife goes, I think you should get some ice or do you want to leave? And I said, no, I'm good. She goes, well, your hand is shaking, you know? So <laughs> fifth inning, I said, no, I got a few more innings. I'm all right. And by the time we got home, my finger was very bruised and swollen, went to urgent care, got an x-ray, uh-huh. fractured it, and actually just got back from a hand specialist. So thankfully, no tendon damage, but I'll be in this little thing here for a couple of weeks. 
it, it would be hard for my listeners to imagine what is actually on your hand when you describe a broken pinky. It, it looks like your hand has been mauled. It, uh, it, it's pretty severe. So they're taking good care of you. They want nothing but the best for you, Rich. You know, I, uh, I'm accident prone. When I was 14 and 15, I broke my wrist two years in a row, and I had a cast that went up to my shoulder. So I'm used to this. This feels a bit <laughs> on the top here, uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll milk it as much as I can, especially at home. Yeah, definitely. Are you preaching this Sunday? I am preaching this Sunday, so uh, all right, I'll have to be. Are you? Are you story? Yeah, I figure you definitely need to work that one in, and I don't know how you can, uh, you know, how you can use it to your advantage, but I definitely think you need to do that at your church. <laughs> do you think your church is going to be sympathetic to you oh, in light uh, of your injury? Uh, they're going to laugh first, uh, mm-hmm. and and they're going to ask what everyone else, every single person who has heard my story, asks a follow up question. It's happened every time. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm surprised you haven't done it yet. And they said, did you catch the ball? And, mm-hmm. and uh, the answer is no, because it, it, my finger was broken. And and a little boy who was maybe three seconds from me just picks it up and shouts in the air like, yeah. And I was like, you know, what? I'm glad it's just this little boy and not some other guy who just picked it up because, um, you know, it was worth it there. So. But no, I didn't yeah. catch the ball, sadly. <laughs> well, I, of course, if you were to give me some time, I would have gotten to that question. Because uh, we want to know, like, was it worth it? And uh, I, I feel like you have to go for it. Like, you have, to, you have to try. Well, here's the thing. This is my first and last time that I will ever do this. Now, I've been to games before, plenty of games, and I've never gotten it this close to, like, it literally came to my seat, like the pop-up oh, wow. and the guy reached over and we, you know, but I've never had it this close, but from now on, I will go to the game with my baseball glove in hand ready. You know what? No shame in my game. Uh, let me put my pride to the side. I am <laughs> glove whenever I go to a game from now on. Okay. Now let me give you another option. <laughs> Cause I think that the glove move is, it, uh, I mean, it's a move. I mean, a lot of kids go with that, and uh, older, like old, like people like our age, like full full grown humans, yes. not a lot. But I, like, I'm fine for you to do that. Let me throw something else yeah. at you. Do you ever feel like this might be God's way of saying you need to be a Yankees fan, not a Mets fan? You know, it's, because it's yeah, yeah. It, Someone just actually a friend a, a friend of mine uh, left a message saying, "Rich, I hope your finger's doing well, and this may be God's sign to you to uh, become a Yankees fan." He literally just said that maybe two hours ago. And uh, that's just absolutely a, a word from the pit of hell. Uh, no. I refuse to receive any of that. <laughs> okay, well, here it is. If you let the Holy Spirit's leading take you where you need to go, I'll add you to the group text that uh, Pete ends and myself, and uh, he's got one of his coworkers uh, that are on uh, about the Yankees. And so I think that would be a nice way for you to experience the full breadth of the kingdom of God uh, by joining... Dare I say you would be judged by, by not, or should I say Aaron judged for not? Correct. That's my one baseball f- pun for the day, so let's move on after that. <laughs> Very nice. Okay. All right. Let me tell you a story. Um, I'm reading uh, your book uh, on a plane coming back from Nashville uh, maybe a week or two ago, and... I had never read the Langston Hughes poem that you have at the very beginning. And I I say that with much shame because it is a beautiful poem. And it's the poem from which you get the title of the book, right? Yeah. I want to read it uh, just so my audience can jump in. And then I'm going to ask you why this poem connected to you so strongly that it became the title of your second book. Second book, right? Number two? Yeah. Okay. So this is uh, Langston Hughes, Tired. I am so tired of waiting. Aren't you? 
for the world to become good and beautiful and kind. Let us take a knife and cut the world in two and see what worms are eating at the ride. Yeah, it's, it's a poem. Uh, I'm, I am a big fan of Hughes and have read a number of his poems over the years. And I read that one uh, maybe, I want to say for the first time, maybe six years ago. And I never forgot it. It was one of those poems that whenever there was something going on in the world that was just crazy, you know, every other day, Luke, uh, I just thought this would be a great time just to post this poem just because I think it speaks to longing. I think it speaks to uh, the deep desire of the soul and also speaks to um, the uh, not just the problems of the day, but the invitation to look deeper beneath the surface. And so all of those things really served as, uh, in many ways, the impetus, not just behind the title of the book, but the larger uh, goal that I had in mind to identify the worms uh, beneath the surface, if you will, that are keeping us from the kind of good and beautiful and kind life that God has for us. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. that poem grabbed me, and uh, so I'm, I'm really glad you have the book. It definitely impacted me, and, and I love the direction of where you're going. Uh, as you mentioned, like this is a time when there's a lot going on, and it seems that there are a lot of worms that are doing a lot of things. And I liked the uh, description that you talked about the uh, hostility over the last couple of years, uh, the CPR mm-hmm. uh, abbreviation of COVID political hostility. Uh, hostility, racial injustice. There, there's a lot that makes us need some CPR because we're going through some serious stuff right now. Mm. Um, I, I feel like everyone is always saying that, but it does seem like there's more now, right? I, I think there has been an, an intensification of the, the the polarization, the challenge, the divisiveness over the past couple of years. And again, it, part of it is the convergence of those three realities of a global pandemic, of the level of political hostility, or if you want to go as far as, say, political idolatry, as well as the racial uh, injustice. And so the convergence of those three things, and plus you add to it just the ongoing burgeoning uh, presence of social media, the ubiquitous nature of of our thoughts and our words. Never in human history have we had access to this level of thinking across the board with everyone. And so, because everyone has a voice, which is a great gift, but also a great limit and challenge, I think we're seeing the exacerbation of all those things, especially in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. As someone who pastors a diverse church in, uh, where is the church located? What part of New York? Queens, New York City. In Queens. Okay, so you're there in Queens with uh, Captain America, uh, who Spider-Man. I think is from Queens, right? And Spider-Man. But is it both of them? Captain right? America's from okay. Brooklyn, Spider-Man's from Queens. Oh, that's right. I feel like I should know the Marvel Cinematic Universe better. My bad. Um, so you're from Queens, diverse church, uh, different people from all over the world. I think last in your previous book, you talked about like so many different nations are represented there, different political commitments. Uh, obviously, the kingdom of God should be the first one, but different uh, partisan political commitments here in, in America. Mm-hmm. And as you're dealing with the abundance of strife and conflict, how does that present uniquely in a church that has the type of political diversity that you've experienced uh, in Queens? Yeah, in some ways it's, it's very challenging because, uh, you know, uh, what we have in Queens, across the country you could say there is, um, in churches, the reality that we have in Queens. I think we have it on a scale, however, that's a little deeper and higher than others. 
only because of our diversity. 75 nations represented in our congregation, mm. in, a, in a neighborhood where 123 languages are spoken, uh, a church that has lots of generational diversity, uh, ideological, political, theological diversity, people coming from all kinds of traditions, whether it's Pentecostal, Catholic, Reformed, uh, Episcopal. We have folks coming from all kinds of uh, backgrounds and experiences at New Life. And so uh, the last couple of years have revealed in many ways uh, the, the ways that our values, uh, apart from saying, yeah, we love Jesus, but after that, uh, the values that mean a lot to us have come to the surface in some profound ways. And I think part of that is because of the nature of our diversity. You get that many different people within a community uh, together, you're bound to find all kinds of different ways of seeing the world and understanding the world and values of the world. So uh, the last few years have been very difficult for us as a church. Yet, I mean, God, I think, has sustained our community in some beautiful ways. Yet there's been some really significant challenges. What values have you seen come to the surface that, uh, I know you're familiar with a lot of the values your church uh, has, but maybe some unique values that have come to your surface that before the last two years you weren't aware with how influential they were to your congregants? You know, it's funny because um, what, what I would say is what's come more to the surface is are, are the fears more so than the values. Uh, hmm. I think our congregation would say, that, you know, we have five particular values. I mean, I wrote about this in Deeply Formed Life, you know, yeah. templative rhythms and racial justice and interior examination and sexual wholeness and missional presence. What I think what, what comes to the surface is not so much a value whenever there is tension, but fears. Uh, and so whenever after the murder of George Floyd uh, and lots of the fears were, uh, oh, wow, our church is participating in a prayer protest in Queens. And the fears that emerged was, wow, is New Life becoming a political movement? Is New Life now, has New Life aligned itself with Black Lives Matter? That's really the, the, the great fears. Has New Life now become more um, uh, liberal or what have you? Uh, so I, I think those were the larger fears. And in Queens, it's a bit different than Manhattan. New York City is, is generally a very liberal, progressive city and state. Uh, Queens, however, because of the nature, I think, of immigrants uh, and because it's a lot different than Manhattan, we find a lot more conservative uh, and moderates within our community. Uh, mm -hmm. And so some of those folks are wondering, wow, what's happening to our church? So I think that's what really came to the surface, whether we're talking about race, whether we're talking about politics, um, which is why I, I mean, I did a. A six-week series. Luke, do you remember 2020? It was kind of crazy. Uh, I, I, yeah, yeah. Uh, I yeah, I've heard, six, heard about it. <laughs> a six-week series on the church politics and the gospel right before the election. And um, I, I think we were able to navigate much of the tensions uh, in that series because we were trying to identify what's happening beneath the surface, as Langston Hughes was talking about in that poem. But even so, um, lots of difficult conversations, lots of tensions along the way. Mm -hmm. So when you're trying to imagine uh, what can make us whole, and you're trying to imagine this good, beautiful, kind world that God desires for us, the, the kingdom of God being brought to fruition on earth as is in heaven, uh, you make a move that some people would think would be a little bit uh, perplexing to start your book talking about sin. What would make you think that uh, the beginning of this conversation needs to be with sin? 
Yeah, it's not it's not the popular way to start a book. All right, we're going to dive into it first. We're going to talk about <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. Christian and non-Christian alike. And I think part of that is because we have often understood sin to within categories of shame and with categories of condemnation. And so to talk about sin is often done from a position of uh, religious, um, uh, you know, hierarchical kind of way of living in the world. You are you're not good enough. You're not measuring up yeah. enough. And here's your sin. The, the approach I take is a bit different in that I'm trying to locate sin, not from the perspective of moral transgression so much as it is failure to love. Uh, and so yeah. what I do is I, I make this theological connection saying that if the greatest command is to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, if that's the greatest command, then the greatest sin must be failure to live out that command, which in short is failure to love. And so for me, sin is this idea of failing to love as God would have us to love. That makes it a bit different than how we typically think about it in terms of uh, our moral inconsistency with the most blatant kind of sins uh, that we uh, keep secret to ourselves. Uh, So I began there because at the core of it, sin is failure to love, but it is part of a larger principle that organizes human life. Something profoundly broken with the world that keeps us what St. Augustine says, in curvitus and say, just turned in on ourselves to the point that it obscures and blocks out love. So I, 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 st- I, went, I went big, man. So I started off big saying, if we're going to address the problems of brokenness in the world, it's, it's not going to happen by us trying a little bit harder. It's going to come into focus by us getting a better picture, a clearer picture of what it means that we are marked by sin. Uh, yeah. So... Yeah, uh, hopefully that- uh, it makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it, it, like it makes perfect sense to me. I, I love uh, the quote of my one of my favorite people in the world, Barbara Brown Taylor, who's, who, who the line that you include in the book has something about like we can stop talking about sin, we can remove the word, but it doesn't remove the fact that there are powers and principalities that are actively working against the kingdom of God and love as God intends it. Like there, there is this force that is anti love, anti God in the world, and you know if you don't want to talk about it, fine, but it still exists. And so I, I also love Augustine's talk about. Uh, or imagery about how sin is like curving us in on ourselves, mm-hmm. and I think I think we've become in, in some ways like over the issue of sin because we have such an emaciated view of what sin is, yeah. where it's just like, oh well, you know, God's gonna be mad if I say the, the wrong word when a baseball hits my finger uh, <laughs> at the Mets game, you know. And, and if that's the the totality of what we think sin is, like God becomes really small, and the idea of sin becomes really small. But if it's this cosmic thing that's pushing us away from love as God designed, all of a sudden you go, well, that's a really compelling argument and helps us see the world that we live into, where God's not this arbitrary God who's just like, well, you know, you say the right word, or you say the wrong word, or you know, it, it becomes like this active force that God is working against. And I think that helps us understand our reality in our existence. Yeah. And what I'm trying to do, that's really well said, Luke. And what I'm trying to do in starting it off by talking about sin is to make the connection between wholeness and sin. Um, I'm essentially saying uh, to move, to be rescued from sin is to now be turned upward and outward. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, And so as opposed to be turning inward in the most negative way, I mean, I talk a lot about turning inward in a very positive way, talking about turning inward in a very self-referential, the world revolves around me and my desires and my passions or whatever, my my perspective, Uh, I want to now turn outward and wholeness emerges 
not through greater simply self-actualization or self-awareness. Wholeness emerges as we love well. And so the good mm-hmm. and beautiful and kind, if I can even summarize that even more, what I mean by becoming whole is loving well. And to the degree that our lives love well is the degree to which we will experience the kind of wholeness uh, that we long for that moves us away from uh, the fractures and the sin that so marks our lives. Yeah. It seems that if the first and the second greatest command is to love God and to love people, then the way that we understand how well we're doing with life should involve most of all love. I mean, that's the essence of who God is. God is love. Scripture tells us that. Mm-hmm. And so it makes sense to found everything in that. And so the question becomes not, um, it, you know, am I saying the right word when a baseball hits my finger, but am I loving people well? Am I loving others? Am I loving God well? That becomes a far more, uh, I, I think, fruitful exercise for us to go through than just kind of some of the arbitrary ways that we define sin. Yeah, so much of our spirituality in terms of Christian spirituality again becomes so privatized and self-referential yeah uh yeah. and then we find ourselves i think it was in that chapter that i allude to a quote from thomas merton that says that the devil makes uh many disciples uh by preaching against sin uh yeah and uh whenever whenever we find ourselves uh so um uh, you know, fixated with our failures in such a way or our goodness in such a way that, again, keeps us focused on ourselves, we've missed out on the whole thing. And our life yeah. is no longer oriented towards God or towards our neighbor, but, again, oriented towards a, a, a life driven by performance, a moralism, which really becomes one of the great obstacles to truly understanding and living into the gospel of grace. That's great. Let, let me read the rest of that Merton quote I got in front of me. The devil makes many disciples by preaching against sin. He convinces them of the great evil of sin, induces a crisis of guilt by which, quote, God is satisfied. And after that, he lets them spend the rest of their life meditating on the intense sinfulness and evident reprobation of other men. In other words, by becoming solely focused on abstaining from sin, defined very narrowly, we live by a crushing moralism that robs us from enjoying God and the self-righteous places and self-righteously places us above others this is one of the sad expressions of christian faith which we witness mm-hmm. i mean that's brilliant like that's exactly what we've done with this understanding of what sin is and i think like what you're pushing us to is a far more all-encompassing understanding of what it is yeah yeah and hopefully with that understanding it'll help us uh as a follower of jesus uh my hope is that it'll move us towards jesus that to deal with sin is not simply about education or kind of, again, moral improvements. The, the, the depth of sin is so deep uh, and powerful that we need a power outside of ourselves uh, to rescue us from its grip. And hopefully uh, this understanding of sin will point us to our need uh, for uh, the gospel of grace, which is why Barbara Brown Taylor, at the end of that chapter, I mentioned where she talks about sin as our only hope. Uh, which is very counter counterintuitive yeah. because we don't think about sin as our only hope. We think about Jesus as our only hope. But sin, if rightly understood, can become our hope if it ultimately points us and pushes us to our need for God. Yeah, no, that's good. That's really good. And uh, w- one of the things uh, about sin is that it like it affects who we are, the way we live, the way we understand ourselves, the way that we engage and respond to other people. And like part of the work of the redemptive work of God in our life is the way that l- love changes all those things, it changes how we interact with others, and it gives us the ability to hear things that we we, we probably don't want to hear um, because we live from a place of love. 
Uh, in the book, you tell a story uh, when you are a 28-year-old preacher. This is a, a few years ago. Uh, like Not like you're super old or something like that. That, that, that came across wrong. Um, but like a few years ago, and you're preaching at New Life, and the uh, founding pastor, Pete Skazer, I feel like I never say his name right, even though he's been on the podcast. Yep. Did I say it right? That's correct, yep. Yeah, I mean, he never came back on the podcast, so I don't, I don't know if I said it wrong. No. Um, so Pete does this practice. So you, you preach, and this might have been one of your first times. Um, but after, after the first service, he says, hey, here are a few notes about the sermon. And when he says that to you, one, you're, you're not expecting that, right? No, you're I, not ready for it. I'm holding, I'm expecting, you know, I preached my sermon. It was my first sermon at New Life. And I'm thinking, wow, hey, Rich, great job. Thank you. We have another service. Mm-hmm. Can't wait to hear it again. That's what I was hoping for. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but instead, what does he do? <laughs> well, it's interesting because he began with so much, and Pete has always done that with me. Uh, hey, this was great. Wow, that was great. But I think you can strengthen it a little bit by doing you know, this and that. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking to myself, who the hell do you think? I mean, that's, pretty, <laughs> that's what I'm thinking. You know? Who do you think people are talking to me like that? Man? And, and now he was my boss. But what I was getting at and what I get out of the chapter is how fragile my soul was in that moment and how defensive my soul was and still has a tendency of being uh, whenever something is exposed in me. So... Uh, yeah, but I mean that's that's many of us like me at twenty eight. Like I, I, I wouldn't have had the maturity to be able to listen to that really well, especially if I wasn't expecting it. Yeah, like I right now, like I do a a focus group every week, and I go through a draft of my sermon, and different people come to the group basically whenever we do it, and I say, you know, I, what, what was bad about the sermon? I eventually get to that question. I, I say it nicer and dance, and, all, and so I'm used to it. I'm like I expect it. I'm ready for it, but you know. 12 years ago, if someone would have done that to me, I, I'm not ready for that. Now, <laughs> l- let me tell you another story. Um, I guess the the week this ser- uh, this podcast will come out, the week before, I actually have some of the uh, lay elders at our church who are going to be preaching. And so these are two guys who've been around for maybe 20 or 30 years longer than you and I. And so I- I'm working with them writing the sermon because they never like preached a sermon at a church. And they're very receptive like hey tell me what okay what are some notes on this what are some uh suggestions how i can get this better and you see that and like that's way different than 28 year old luke and i think that speaks to something that has grown in them like this is spiritual formation that's happened to them and you talk about the opposite of that is the term you use uh soul fragility yeah yeah and i think that's where many of us many of us aren't at the place where i can be like yeah give me notes tell me what i can do better why do we first of all describe what you mean by soul fragility yeah, I mean, by, by soul fragility, I'm really talking about um, uh, this this hyper defensiveness that emerges in us whenever something is exposed. Uh, yeah. Now, when when whenever we hear in, in some context, uh, Luke, you know, there's a book that came out called White Fragility, uh, in which someone was writing about race and the, the level of fragility that white people have when they talk about race and all that. Uh, but what I'm getting at is there's even something deeper that all of us have, uh, and it is a soul fragility that, that at some point in our lives, there are, um, there, there's, a, there's a defensiveness that emerges whenever something from our uh, false self is confronted, something is exposed, and again, it leads us to this hyper-defensiveness uh, because we're trying to protect something, which is why uh, the virtue of humility, what I write about humility, 
what I, what I get at is humility is essentially poverty of spirit. And poverty of spirit is, is a recognition that there's nothing to prove, nothing to protect, and nothing to possess. Uh, and if my life is lived with nothing to prove, nothing to protect, not even the, 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 you know, the bad parts of my life, and nothing to possess, there's nothing to cling to, that is interior freedom that can move yeah. beyond the kind of soul fragility. But we're all to some degree uh, fragile. And the people who are most angry and most um, uh, you know, protective, those are the folks actually who are manifesting uh, the greatest amount of soul fragility. Uh, even though on mm-hmm. the outside, on, it might seem like an exterior shell, uh, on mm-hmm. the inside, what's really happening is there's fragility there. Yeah, you're exactly right. Did you think about uh, sex, uh, titling that section, All Souls Are Fragile, uh, instead of uh, White Fragility? Uh, you, can, you can edit that in for the next edition of the book. Yeah. Uh, that's my suggestion. Uh, you, you, you got a quote? I'm proud of that one. Um, uh, here's your quote. Uh, you see, humility is not just doing a lowly task. It is a life committed to the hard task of lowering one's defenses. Talk to us about some of the tasks that help us lower our defenses. Well, I think part of the... Uh, to, to lower our defenses and live from that place requires, um, in many ways, compassionate self-confrontation with ourselves. Uh, I think the reason why uh, we are so fragile, the reason why I'm so fragile is because there's so many messages and lies that are so uh, deeply entrenched in my mind and in my heart that uh, if to the degree that I can expose those lies and messages is the degree to which I can live in greater freedom. And so I think when, whenever there's something like Whenever my, a part of my life is being challenged, being questioned, uh, whenever someone's going, hey, I'm just curious as to why you said this, I can see that as a threat uh, to my very existence, or I could see that as an opportunity for me to once again uh, try to get at the messages that have still uh, formed my deepest sense of identity. My deepest sense of identity is... I'm loved by Jesus. That's my deepest yeah. sense of who I am. And anything that seeks to usurp that and replace that is a false identity, is a false self. Uh, and so um, having a sense of compassionate self-confrontation uh, is, I think, really important when we're talking about humility, which is why, you know, most folks, and I, I believe I said it something along the lines of when people think about humility, they think about doing lowly tasks, uh, mm-hmm. as opposed to lowering our defenses. And yeah. uh, that's, I, I do think humility is about doing lowly tasks as well. You know, I mean, I, I, I don't want to get away from that. Uh, that's one facet of humility. But humility is also, which is why I love the Desert Father tradition, because we see it within the Desert Fathers uh, and Mothers, this sense of uh, there's nothing to protect. Uh, if, if, if you've noticed something wrong in me, uh, as the desert tradition would say, uh, you should see what else is inside of me. Uh, if you would yes. see what else is inside of me, you go, what? Uh, that's in you as well. There's a freedom, nothing to prove, nothing to protect, nothing to possess. Uh, and so when I think about humility and soul fragility, I think honestly naming those messages are so important. Yeah. Well, Jesus talks about the poor in spirit, 
but it's in the section known as the Beatitudes. It starts with blessed are. Like there is a blessing in the kingdom of God, maybe not in the world, but in the kingdom of God, uh, there is a blessing to be poor in spirit. Because like what you describe is this is the, the venue, the vehicle through which we experience freedom where it's just like, yeah, you think this is wrong with me? I've got way more wrong with me. I'm, I'll put more on the table if you want to see my flaws and the way this sin has impacted me. But there is a freedom in like letting go of that. And the opposite of that is like the, like the, the fragile defensiveness of like, no, 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 I can't acknowledge my humanity. I can't acknowledge my brokenness. And you just mentioned like, that's definitely your, your false self. Like these are not real true things about you. Uh, When we're talking about this idea of false self, uh, Merton is the one who I think probably is most prominent in getting us that idea of uh, false self, true self. Uh, You got three quotes about uh, false self in the book. I'm going to read one of them. Do you like Rohr, Merton, or Mulholland? Which one do you think is the right one? Uh, You pick. You put them all in there. uh, Assures me correctly, I think Rohr is probably the one that's most poignant in this. Okay, good, because he's the only person I actually know of those three, uh, (laughs) for obvious reasons. I mean, it'd be hard to know Merton at this point. Um, uh, Okay, so here's uh, Rohr's line about it. Uh, The agenda of the false self is to look good, to pretend. You can tell when the false self takes over because you become easily offended. The false self is offended about every three minutes because it is fragile. There it is. The true self, on the other hand, is unoffendable. That's exactly what you're just saying. Like this, this is what happens. Like when you're offended, it's because you're not living out of your truest self. Yeah, which is why there's a line that we often use at New Life at our church that says, you know, what does my reaction tell me about me? Uh, I know oh, what my good. reaction tells you me about somebody else. You know, say, say that again. Say that again. Yeah. What What does my reaction tell me about me? We We often say that in when we train small group leaders or train people in community to say. If you are in close proximity to someone else, at some point, they're going to say something that's going to trigger a response. And I know what my reaction tells me about you. You know, you're a jerk or whatever it is. But but yeah, when yeah. we go there, what does my reaction tell me about me? And I think that's a better place where God wants to operate because there's always something else that God longs to heal and, and make whole. But that roar quote essentially gets at in uh, very succinctly what I'm trying to get at here. Okay, let's talk about this in a very practical way. Uh, and this is something that I, I can't relate to. Um, but in your book, you talk about getting angry emails from people who are upset at your sermons. And uh, I obviously, uh, I, I don't know what that's like. I've never had anything like that before. Uh, so I want you to tell me, like, what happens? No, kidding, of course. Um, this is one of the most poignant ways that uh, people who do what we do uh, get criticism. Like, people uh, have, have opinions about the way we said things or what we did. And... When you receive that email, um, next time you get one, let's say it's next Monday, someone writes an email, this is what you said, and this is what you didn't say, and this is what's wrong with you, and this is, you know, the church is in trouble because Rich is preaching this kind of stuff. The things that come up, they're probably not all good, your first response. They're probably similar to the words that you want to say when that baseball hits your finger. Um, what is your self-talk? Like, what is your process? What do you do when that happens, when those things come up and you want to respond like do you have like kind of like a discipline or, or just a typical response that you go with yeah i think part part of part of what i have to recognize is the roller coaster of response is normal uh and i don't know if i will ever get to a point uh where i will totally uh not have any kind of uh difficult feelings 
uh, when I read something that is challenging something I said or, or what, are, what I represent or what have you. My, my first impulse is shame. Uh, that something's wrong with me, that I'm bad. I'm not the pastor that I thought I was. I'm not the preacher that I thought I was. I thought I was better than that. And I think that's where I typically, my mind typically goes. Uh, and then very, you know, right after that is usually anger. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, you know, who the heck did this person think they are? And mm-hmm. you know, I want to see them preach a sermon. And I want to see you exposit a text the way I exposit it. And now I, I go down a whole road of imaginary conversations and how mm-hmm. much I'm a better preacher than they are and thinker than that. I mean, it's all, again, the false self. Uh, as opposed to, uh, no, so I go through this, you know, now here's the challenge. What, this is what I've learned about my life. Um, when that happens, I'm usually going into a hole. That's um, that, that, that's language for me. I'm going, I'm in a bad place right now. You're going in the hole. Yeah. I go into the. It's not that I don't go into the hole anymore, but I don't go as deep and as long as I used to. I used to hmm. be in the hole for a long time, number of days, uh, and I used to get deep in there. Uh, so it's not that I don't go in the hole, but I'm not hanging there as long as I used to. And why not? Why aren't you there as long? You know, I think uh, part of it is along the way, uh, I've had some, uh, uh, I think, encounters with God and encounter- through people, uh, through friends, through spiritual directors, through counselors, through my wife, through just relationships that have helped me to get a little bit more objective about um, what I'm experiencing uh, in the moment. And so uh, a large part of it is, uh, you know, this is what this person is feeling at the moment. How can back to sin and incurvitus and say my response when I go it, when I turn inward in that way again, I'm being marked by sin. Uh, I'm turning in on myself as opposed to might there be some hidden nuggets of wisdom that I need from this person? Uh, is there a blind spot that um, uh, that they are revealing to me? Uh, Or is there something that this is just their anxiety and the best gift that I can give them is my presence, my loving, tender presence. That's where uh, I've tried to go. And and I'll tell you what, I think I've gotten a lot better in doing that. But I still think that those first initial responses are still there. And I don't know if I'll ever I pray that the day comes where I get an email that's critical or sometimes it's not even critical. Sometimes it's. Hey, can we talk about whatever? And I'm thinking, oh, no, what's wrong with me? That's where I typically go. I don't know if I'll ever be done with that. Uh, I hope I will. Uh, but I'm not there as long as I am. So part of it is the messages, the scripts, the, those things that are so deep in my subconscious that, again, just needs to come to the surface. And I think the more that I'm able to give myself to that level of reflection of identifying those false messages, those false scripts, I think I now experience a little more, a little bit more freedom to be present with others uh, mm-hmm. and to truly uh, enter into their world. Yeah, yeah. If, if the false self doesn't want to be offended and it doesn't want to be uh, pointed out, like where it, it, it's flawed, it's imperfect, it's mm-hmm. got errors. Like criticism is probably like one of the worst things for the false self, but for our truest self, and if we believe there is a blessing in the important spirit, like these are great invitations for us. Um, and, and that's why Jesus puts them into the attitude, which reminds us like just how upside down the kingdom of God is, that it's not it, it's not my false self. It's not the way of the world. It's not uh, the pattern of no. thinking of this world. Like there has to be transformation for me 
to get there. Like there has to be a, a transformation process so that if sin curves us in on ourselves, like metaphorically, of course, um, but love opens us up. And one of the goals is to, to love well. Like how do, how do we love well in criticism is the question. Yeah, I think part of it goes to the true self, uh, I would say, is oriented around uh, at least two things. Number one, it's communion with God. And number two, it's character formation. Uh, And so uh, I I know I'm living from the true self when I get criticized and I go, Lord, is there something in me uh, that still needs to be formed by you? And is this person offering me a gift uh, for my ongoing formation in you? Uh, Now, I'm not saying that's easy, uh, and I'm not saying that's where I usually go. But I know when that's happened in my life, and again, it usually happens after um, I experience that shame and that anger and that, hey, I want to see you do it better than me. So once I get through all of the false self of that there, hopefully I'm not in there too long. Then I can step back and say, you know, Lord, is there the true self longs for ongoing communion with God? The true Mm -hmm. self, you know, your life. Colossians three says, you know, your life is hid with Christ in God. That's where my life is. There's a level of intimacy that the true self has with God. And I want to live in that place. Uh, But I also want character formation. And so if my heart is aligned in those ways, I want ongoing communion with God and I want my character to be shaped by Jesus. Then when criticism comes, it becomes an opportunity, which is why, back to Rohr, Rohr says in one of his books that, and I have not achieved this uh, level of enlightenment, Luke, uh, but he says that he prays uh, uh, for, to be, to have, um, uh, not offended, it's kind of like for a hu- one humiliation a day, something along those lines. Uh, yeah, yeah, because, so that. the yeah. false self can be put in its place. And I'm thinking... I'm not to the point where I'm praying for the false self to be offended in a given day. Uh, but by God's grace, hopefully one day in the distant yeah. future, I suppose, uh, I'll be able to pray something along those lines. Yeah, I, I'm, I am definitely not there myself. But there's also a reason why the Pope didn't invite me to come out and talk to him about something like he did with Roar recently. So, uh, you know, there, there, there are different places for each of us. But conflict is, uh, is inevitable. It's, we all have. And, you know, part of our work uh, includes uh, angry emails, and that's just, you know, par for the course for what we do. But everyone has to deal with conflict. And you talk about, like, three stages of conflict. And you use heaven, hell, and holding tension. Yeah. And I think we can all imagine uh, the hell of conflict, but what is this ideal of like being able to hold tension in conflict when when we experience it? Yeah, you know, those three stages are 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 not unique to me. I'm trying to use just different language to get at kind of the age old cycle of human relationships uh, in that uh, that first stage is usually one marked by idealism and romanticism, whether we're talking about a new relationship that's romantic, whether we're talking about a new job, a new church, it usually begins very nice. I could tell who are, who the new people are in our congregation almost immediately because they speak so glowingly about our church. What a church. I've never been to a place like this before. The people are so nice. The sermon is great. Why? And I go, well, how long have you been here? You know, two weeks. Well, Oh, all right, stick around for a little bit. And, uh, and then inevitably what happens is because we create these, uh, th- we're marked by idealization and idealism, whenever our dreams, whenever our idols are now put into question, 
uh, it's it's amazing how the, the pendulum swings the other way and it becomes more of a uh, hellish environment. And by hellish, I just simply mean if the first stage is heaven, the second stage is hell. I'm just saying it's usually that place where uh, people are no longer seen as total angels, but we can swing the pendulum to seeing people as demons. Uh, you know, and so we find out, oh, that person voted for who? Uh, why am I at this church? This church is that kind of church. Uh, and the holding detention stage is just a recognition, I, I think, theologically as well as psychologically and socially, uh, that we are not angels, neither are we demons. I think we're somewhere in between. And church is not heaven, and neither it's neither neither it's, it's, is it hell. It's somewhere in between. And I think if we can hold that mixture within our own selves, number one, uh, that we are full of mixture, I think it can give us the capacity uh, to more effectively be in close proximity and navigate the conflicts that we experience. I'm not talking about, Luke, the, uh, the abuse. I'm not talking about the toxicity. I'm talking about the regular conflicts that we experience uh, one week to the next. And usually it's those conflicts. It's, not, it's often not the really big stuff that gets people to leave a job or leave a church or end the relationship. It's often some of the simple conflicts that harken back to the soul fragility. I cannot stay in this space any longer, and so I'm out of here, as opposed to I'm going to do my best by God's grace to try to work through this conflict as opposed to running away from it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to see conflict as an invitation and like to go back to roar roar talks about all spirituality is about letting go and letting go of the false self letting letting go of the pride letting go of control letting go of us always getting our way like that that's that's the way to get there and to to see the complexity of relationships is essential one of the things about uh, i'm an enneagram seven uh what we do yeah i mean we're that's why this is such a fun conversation because we we bring the life to the party right um but uh like what we do in conflict is that we go to very binary like black and white thinking it's good people bad people uh us versus them and we see people either as an ally or an enemy and you go that's not helpful like that's not christian the witness of christianity is that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory glory of god yet all are created in the image of god and so those two things have to be intention and so the idea of this sort of like reductionistic way of seeing people is not helpful healthy for anyone like we all have to live in that holding tension space where yeah like there's a mess here and it's not just you who created it like i helped create this and we're all in this together and we've got to live in this and that's part of what it means to be people who love well is that we can love each other well even when things aren't exactly how we would draw it up that's so well said and our world is marked by that dualism uh that binary you're talking about of good and evil um, righteous and unrighteous. And uh, that's not to say that there is no space for very clear calls for justice and clear calls to point out evil and clear calls to root out abuse and such. Um, but we're not talking about here. We're, we're talking about some of the just regular uh, conflicts, differences that we see that uh, so easily move us to seeing people in very one dimensional ways. And um, I think that's what hopefully this book is helping us to do, to see beyond just that um, very dangerous dualistic way of thinking. Yeah, I think you're definitely right. You've just done this twice. You've added a caveat. I'm not talking about abuse. I'm not talking about toxicity. Yeah. One of the things I'm reminded as a pastor is like you can preach a sermon like that speaks to 80% of people's reality, but there's always like 10% on either side that don't fit right there in the middle. And, you know, I 
preached a sermon not too long ago about uh, you know forgiveness and we ought to do this. And then someone's like, oh, you know, I've got this person. There's abuse, and what do I do? I'm like, yeah, I wasn't talking about you. <laughs> like this has nothing to do with your life, and it's just tough because. Life is complicated, and situations have a lot of layers to it. And you know, you write a book, you, you do a sermon, you, you try to offer something to the world, and you go, "Yeah, but this isn't a counseling situation where I can deal with the complexity of your life specifically." But it's the generalities of life, and I think this book speaks to the generalities that just about all of us have experienced. And um, yeah, that's just it's helpful. It's good. Yeah, to that point, though, Luke. I mean, I have heard enough pushback from people to your point of what about and what about and what about. And so, whenever mm-hmm. I could insert and just be crystal clear in the moment to say, I'm not talking about this. I'm talking about that here. Uh, yeah. It's just really important because I could just hear people say, "But what about?" But what about? <laughs> Dude, I, I I find myself. I feel like I make that caveat week in and week out. And one week is like, you know, I'm not going to make the caveat. Like I'm sick of saying it. They've heard me say it, and then I don't. And like I get two people who are like, yeah, but what about? I'm like, dang it, I deserve that. I deserve that. Um, Rich, last time we had the, you in the podcast, um, I had a very important question for you. And I feel like you weren't prepared for it. And so I want to give you a chance, now that you've had a couple years, you probably thought about this night and day. And I feel like you probably are going to bring your full heart. You're going to be fully formed in the image of Christ and have a great answer for this question. So here's the question for you. In case you forgot, last time you were on the podcast, I asked you the question. If you had to come up with a song that you're going to walk out to, if you're going to go into the UFC octagon and have a cage fight with another adult human being, what song were you going to play? Last time you said you didn't know, you kind of stumbled around, you got the DMX as your answer. Uh, now that you've had a couple of years, I know you probably prayed about it, you talked to your friends, you talked to your wife, you talked to your kids, you talked to your church about this. Um, do you have a fully formed answer um, for that question now? Uh, you know what? I, to- I, I remember that, um, that, that question now. <laughs> If I, I'm going to give you the first, now I'm a hip hop like lover and, mm-hmm. and I have lyrics that I, I, I pray to God that God would erase from my brain because they're just so unchrist. Mm-hmm. But here, here's, here's the first song that came to my mind and it's a song called Annie Up by M.O.P. And um, I don't think people should YouTube it right now uh, okay. because it's pretty vicious. But if I'm going into the octagon and mm-hmm. I, and I want to I want to go in there, uh, you're ready to go. Wag, uh, even though I'm going to get <laughs> out in, in in 20 seconds, or I at least want to go out with a song like that. And so um, yeah, okay. um, I would say MOP, Annie up, and uh, okay. Yeah, if, 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 yeah. If, if, just and a warning to your listeners: uh, if they just go on YouTube right now, not <laughs> used to pop and all that, there they might go. Is this guy even a Christian? But again, I have these songs lodged in my uh, each mm-hmm. memory bank here. So, uh. mm-hmm. well, we've we've talked about the power of sin already, and uh, this is an excellent. <laughs> oh, no, yeah. Um, when I was in high school, uh, my dad at one point found my cache of parental advisory explicitly lyrics uh demarked uh cds and it was all hip-hop like i I was born in philly and so like hip-hop was always like my thing and so at one point like he just steals this whole stash of them and and uh i find out that he has them upstairs in his bedroom closet and so i sneak up there and i'm walking down and i hide him underneath my shirt but all of a sudden it looks like my i have abs but they're all like a big square block and he goes what do you got there and i was like 
Um, just getting ready for a wrestling tournament. Uh, I need some music. Uh, so, yeah, no, we, so, some of us have been there. And so I can relate to that. So no judgment on the uh, the Annie Up rec- uh, song. It, it's deep in my soul, man. And whenever it comes up on the radio, wherever I'm at there, uh, I'm transported back to my days in Brooklyn. Yeah, well... <laughs> let's ante up let's go um, anyway hey uh, the book is good uh, it's really good and congratulations uh, on the second book and uh, do you have any uh, let me ask you another question when your first book came out uh, did your family do something not like like your church like book release party but like did your family do anything when your book came out now it was crazy because it came out in 2020 in September and so the world was shut down uh, and so there was oh, no yeah. no launch party no we did a thing on social media in my living room. My wife helped me out. Mm. It was wonderful and awkward. And uh, this time around, uh, we're hoping to have uh, a proper uh, kind of book release party, uh, whether in our home or somewhere else. So, uh, okay. But the first time around, so, there was nothing along those lines. Oh, how disheartening was that for you? you know, I mean, the, the book did really well. It connected to a lot of people. So obviously you, yeah, you have that to look back on. But Very fortunate and very grateful that the book has done very well and continues to do really well. But here's how, what kept it, kept it in perspective for me. There were people who were not able to have graduation ceremonies the way that they wanted to. And yeah. so I thought, this is a book release here compared to like graduations and funerals and weddings. Uh, I didn't want to go down the road of it could be worse, but what was me? Yeah. I was thinking, you know what, whatever, it's all good. Yeah. I had a book come out. Uh, it was May, I think of 2020. So, uh, like a couple months before you and it was a couple weeks after my mom's funeral, mm. uh, which was like a, a COVID funeral at someone's like backyard. And uh, it was really meaningful. I'm grateful for the hospitality of people to do it. But you're just like, okay, I mean, I, I'm not going to complain about this, not having a, uh, a launch after yeah. just doing a funeral on someone's back porch. So, I mean, you know, it, it was what it was. So this year, uh, I hope you have a nice big celebration for this book because it is a very good one. And I encourage everyone to go check out a copy of it. So Rich, it's great seeing you again. Congrats on the new book. Thanks again, Luke. <laughs>